Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. A'udhu billahi minash shaitanir rajeem. Bismillahir rahmanir rahim. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Alhamdulillahi alladhi hadana lihadha wa ma kunna linahtadiya lawla an hadana Allah. Wa salatu wa salamu ala ashrif al-anbiya wa sayyidil mursaleen wa shafiyil muthnibin sayyidina wa nabiyyina wa habibi qulubina wa tabiba nufusina وَالشَّفِيَ ذَنُوبِنَا عَبِ الْقَاسِمِ مُحَمَّدِ اللهم صلي على محمد وآل محمد والصلاة والسلام على أهل بيته الطيبين الطاهرين المعصومين المدلومين المنتجبين لا سيما مولانا وسيدي صاحب الأسر والزمان روحي وأرواه العالمين له الفداح وأجل الله تعالى فرجه الشريف ولعنة دائمة على أعدائهم ومنكر فضائلهم للآن إلى قيام يوم الدين أما بعد فقد قال الله الحكيم في كتابه المبين بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم يا أيها الناس إن خلقناكم من ذكر وأنثى وجعلناكم شعوبا وقبائل لتعارفوا إن أكرمكم عند الله أتقاكم إن الله أليم خبير صدق الله العلي العظيم for the hastening of the return of our twelfth Imam Imam Al Hujjah for the purification of our hearts and our souls and to bring extra light into the majlis of Aba Abdullah al-Hussein, let's all recite one loud salawat upon Muhammad wa Ali Muhammad. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa Ali Muhammad. My dear brothers and sisters in Iman, as we continue in this commemoration of the tragedy of Karbala and the remembrance of the tragedy of Aba Abdullah al-Hussein alayhi salam and the the length that he went to preserve and protect this religion of Islam from corruption, from the evil that the likes of Yazid and the likes of Banu Umayyah had brought into this religion, and the struggles that he and his family and his companions put forth, especially on the day of Ashura. The least that we can do in these majalis is to remember the tragedy and to do our part in the preservation of the teachings of Islam, and to ensure that we never let corruption or deviation come into our practice of the religion of Islam, and to do what we can do to preserve our identity as believers, as Muslim men and women living within a secular society. And tonight on this eighth night of the month of Muharram, on this special night, because today being a Thursday night, it is obviously a very special evening that we will be entering into. We continue in our theme that we have been going over for these last seven nights with dealing with temporal strife through living a Quranic life, where we have been trying to analyze certain challenges that you and I face in our lives, and to see what can the Quran give us for guidance. Because ultimately, as we know, the Quran is Hudallin Nas. The Quran is Hudallil Muttaqeen. The Qur'an is light, is guidance for those who go to the book. And as we've been seeing over these nights, the Qur'an does actually contain answers to our problems, to our challenges, to our difficulties. We need to open the book and obviously open the book of our hearts, understand and try and reflect on the verses of the Qur'an, obviously through the lens of the teachings of the Prophet and his family, the Ahlul Bayt wassalam, so that we can take from the wisdom of the Qur'an, this book which is known as the Qur'an Al-Hakim, and bring about a change within our lives. 
Tonight, on this eighth night of Muharram, the topic that we want to reflect upon is culture versus religion. How to navigate the maze. And the verse I began with is a very famous verse that we have spoken about in the previous nights when we looked at the topic of racial discrimination within Islam, about racism and uh, what the Islamic approach is. And I want to take uh, blessings from the same verse to guide our discussion tonight. The verse, as we know, comes from Surah Al-Hujarat, chapter 49, the chapter known as the chapter of the chambers. Verse number 13, and it's a very famous verse. I'm sure we've all read it millions of times. We've heard it. We've hopefully memorized it. Where Allah says, Ya ayyuhan nas, O humanity, inna khalakanakum min dhakarin wa untha. We have created you, humanity, from two people, from a male and a female. Waj'alnakum shu'uban wa qaba'ila. And then from those two, from Adam and Eve, and from their children and their progeny, we have spread you into various tribes nationalities, various identities, various skin colors, various languages. Why did Allah do this? Why give us uh, multiple cultures to follow or multiple cultures to engage with? He says, So you may get to know one another. You may get to recognize and enjoy the diversity, the various cultures that each of you have. And then he says what? Inna akramakum indallahi atqaqum Indeed, the most noblest, the greatest of you in the presence of Allah, in the presence of God, is not the one who has the whitest of skin, the one who has blonde hair and blue eyes, or the one who has black hair and dark complexion. It's not whoever speaks the best Arabic. It's not any of these characteristics. It's inna akramakum, indallahi atqakum, the one who has the most taqwa the piety, the reverence of God within their lives. And in Allah alimun khabir, Allah knows all. He has full awareness of all that you and I as humanity do on the face of this earth. Today, in 2020, almost 90% of humanity follow religion. Whether it be Christianity, which is the number one followed religion in the world, or Islam, the number two followed religion, or things like Hinduism, or Buddhism, or any of the other ideologies, whether they be Abrahamic, or they be man-made religions, 90% of humanity today follow some creed, some religion. We have to ask ourselves, why did Allah, God, send religion to humanity? Why would He go through the actions of sending prophet after prophet, Messenger, Imam, Sage, uh, Wali, all of these individuals, why would Allah do all of this? Was the goal to teach the followers what kind of food to cook? What color of clothing to wear? What was the purpose behind the sending of all of these prophets and messengers? Was it just to teach us how to lead, lead a, a societal life? Or was it something deeper than that? You look at the Qur'an, you look at the five Ulul Azm prophets, the prophets of firm resolve, Nuh, Ibrahim, Musa, Isa, and Prophet Muhammad wasallam. These five prophets, what did they come for? Did they come to teach us 
what kind of food to eat, what color of clothing to wear, how to tie our shoes, how to brush our teeth, what time to brush our teeth, or did they come for a greater purpose? Tonight, in this topic of culture versus religion, how to navigate the, the maze, I want to delve into this topic because it's very pertinent, as all of the topics I think we've been going over these last nights are relevant. But being that most of us, I'm sure, are either born in another country and have come to Canada, or no, like myself, you were born in Canada, and your parents came from another country, and so you attach yourself, or your parents attach themselves to another culture, from another part of the world, and now being in Canada, you and I have a different set of, or a different culture that we adhere to, that we have taken from, and sometimes there seems to be a dichotomy, there seems to be a divergence between our parents' culture, our culture, and religion gets stuck in the middle. And many times, many of our youth especially, because they are more grounded in this society, they get pulled in various directions. Do I follow mom and dad's culture of Iraq, or Afghani culture, or Pakistani, or Indian, or African culture? Or do I follow Canadian culture? And unfortunately many times because Islam is in the middle, Islam gets pulled in multiple directions. Because sometimes we cannot differentiate, we cannot separate religion from our native culture. We can't separate Islam from where we came from. And so many times our youth get pulled in different directions. And unfortunately, we lose many of them because they can't be like their family back home. And they're maybe not fully acceptable in this society. And so something has to give, and usually what it is that gives is their religious identity. And so I want to try to somehow go over some of the uh, challenges that we face. How to navigate this maze, this confusion that we are sometimes putting ourselves into for no reason other than the fact that we haven't really sat back to sat back and thought about what is culture what is religion and how do you and I reconcile those two um, you know those two massive foundations those two massive pillars in our lives with where we live today now we as a Muslim community, wherever we come from, we know that we as Muslims are not a monolith. We're not one type, we're not homogenous. We are very diverse. We have Muslims who are native to Spain, just as we have Muslims native to China. And I've met them. We have Muslims who are from Iraq, obviously. We have Muslims from Russia, and I've met those. We have Muslims from countries like South Korea. And we have Muslims from the Caribbean, from Jamaica, from Trinidad, from Guyana. Obviously, they had come to those countries from India uh, hundreds of years ago. And we have Muslims from every country in the world. So we're not a monolith, we're not homogenous, we're not one type. We have Muslims from all over the world. Two things I want to put within our hearts and our mind as I move on in this discussion of how do we understand our position as Canadians, 
as Muslims who are either born in Canada or who have made Canada our home or are living in a Western country, in a non-Islamic, non-Muslim secular environment, two things I want to begin with. One is that the beauty of Islam lies in its unity and its diversity. Meaning that as Muslims, whether we are from Iran or Iraq, from Afghanistan or Pakistan, from Africa or Asia, from Europe or America, we are united in our belief in God, in our belief in the Prophet, in our acceptance of the Ahlul Bayt, in our acceptance of the Qur'an, in all of the other actions and the belief system of this religion. That is what we're united in. We're a united nation in that sense. But at the same time that we have unity, we have diversity. Just as the Qur'an said in Surah Al-Hujarat, وَجَعَلْنَاكُمْ شُعُوبًا وَقَبَائِلًا لِتَعَرَّفُوا In the unity, we have diversity. We have black-skinned Muslims. We have blonde-skinned with blue eyes and blonde hair who are Muslims. We have Muslims from, again, from countries like China. We have this great diversity of Muslims, but we're still united as one collective body. As the Prophet would tell us in the traditions, that, you know, as Muslims, we are like one fortified body. We are like a human body. And if one part of the body gets sick, then the whole body com- should be complaining, or the whole body does complain. And as Muslims, because although we are diverse, we're united. So when our brothers and sisters in another part of the Muslim Ummah are hurting because of oppression, because of government crackdowns, like we see in Kashmir today, like we see in India today, like we've seen in Afghanistan or Iraq or what we've seen in Yemen or in Bahrain or in the Hejaz or in Europe. Wherever we see Muslims suffering, we over here in Canada feel that pain. We feel the grief that they're going through because we have that level of unity. So that's point number one is that although we are diverse, but we are still united. The second thing I want us to reflect upon as we go through this discussion for tonight is that we have to realize we have Islamic culture and we have cultural Islam. Let me say that again. We have Islamic culture, and I'll explain that a bit later on, and we have cultural Islam. And sometimes the two overlap, and sometimes the two are completely separate from one another. And that is what we hopefully want to try and get across to us tonight. And I want to look at basically four major areas, more four major themes for this evening's lecture. Number one, I want to look very briefly at the history of Islam in Canada. I then want to go to define what is religion as a, as a definition and define what is culture and how do the two overlap sometimes and how are they two separate bodies at other times? I want to try and answer the question, that did Islam come to do away with culture and just impose Hijazi Arab culture on all Muslims? Or what did the religion envision? What did Allah envision for the Muslim communities going forward up until today and until the end of time? And I hopefully will try to conclude with the outcome of what is the balance that you and I need to maintain as Muslims living in Canada, as Canadian Muslims. Coming to the first question, what is the history of Islam in Canada? You know, when you look at 
what facts and figures and data that is available on, for example, the Stats Canada website, we're told that Muslims were in Canada as early as 1871. That was, I believe, the first year that we had a Canadian census. But actually, we have records that say that there were Muslims in Canada in the early 1850s. But in 1871, when the census was done, we have, and that's about 150 years ago, we had a recorded number of 13 Muslims in Canada, 150 years ago. Now you look at that today, fast forward 150 years, and today there's over 1.5 million Muslims in Canada. The majority obviously live in the greater Toronto area, in what they call the GTA, large concentration in, obviously in Montreal, and then in all the other provinces of Canada, and even the territories, even if you go up to Northwest Territories, to Yellowknife, to the smaller towns up north, we have large, actually very large nowadays, Muslim communities, and even, you'd be surprised to know, we even have followers of the Ahlul Bayt in Yellowknife, way up in Northwest Territories. So that was 1871, 13 Muslims, today 1.5 million. The very first masjid. How many of us knew that in 1938, the very first masjid was built in Canada? And it wasn't in Toronto, which you'd have thought it would have been in Toronto, the big city wasn't in Montreal, another big city. It was actually just three hours north of where most of you are. Most of you are being in Calgary. The very first masjid built in Canada was built in Edmonton, 1938, the Al-Rashid Masjid, Al-Rashid Mosque as it's known. And that building till today has been preserved in the uh, Fort Edmonton Park as a historical monument. The physical masjid was actually lifted out of the ground and driven about 20 kilometers southwest into an area known as Fort Edmonton Park. At that time when the masjid was built in Edmonton, 1938, we had over 700 Muslims in Edmonton alone. And that's why they needed a masjid. And we see that the Muslim community was growing. It was flourishing in the prairies as it was in Ontario, in Quebec, and other parts of Canada on the west coast as well. So Islam is not alien to Canadian culture, brothers and sisters. Islam is a part and parcel of the Canadian experience. We've been here for, again, 150 years, and we will be here until the end of time. Now, coming to the second discussion, the second question for tonight, what is religion? What is culture? Because, again, this is where this apparent dichotomy is. This is where this division is. This is where this confusion lies in the minds of many people today. That religion is here, culture is here, and there is a great wall or a barrier between the two. And you can't mix the two. You can't mix, let's say, Canadian culture with Islam. You can't mix the two together. There are separate issues. You're Iraqi Muslim, or you're a Pakistani, or you're an Afghani Muslim. That's okay, but you can't add a Canadian component to it. So what is religion actually? We say that inna deena indallahi al-islam, as Allah says in the Quran, that indeed the deen, the religion with Allah is al-islam. Or Allah says in the Quran, وَمَن يَبْتِغِي غَيْرُ الْإِسْلَامَ دِينًا فَلَا يُقْبَلَ مِنْهُ وَهُوَ فِي الْآخِرَةِ مِنَ الْخَاسِرِينَ Whoever chooses other than Islam as their religion, that it will not be accepted from them. And in the world to come, they will be of the losers. 
So what is this religion that Allah is talking about? And what is the culture also aspect? So religion, if you look at the definition that our scholars, the theologians, the experts in ilmul kalam, in aqayid, in theology, when they go to define what is religion, what is deen, that Allah talks about in the Qur'an, that prophets have brought from Allah, they say it's the collective of one, the theoretical, ideological beliefs, so the aqayid, it's the ethical beliefs, the ethical teachings, the akhlaq, and it's the jurisprudential rulings, the ahkam. So aqayid, akhlaq, and ahkam, that's the basis of religion. These were all sent by the one God, by Allah, through the prophets, for the comprehensive material and spiritual guidance of humanity. And it was sent to govern over our personal lives and our societal, our community lives. And if, these were, if, if the teachings of religion are fully implemented, that would safeguard and guarantee our success, the success of humanity, in this world, and more importantly, in the world to come. Now that's the definition of religion. How do you do the actions? That's what the prophets taught. That's what we call the Sharia. And as Allah tells us in the Quran, that every nation had a Shira and a Minhaj, as Allah says. That everyone had a Sharia, a way to follow religion. Every community fasted, but in different ways. Every community prayed, but in different ways. Every community had a sense of hijab, of religious clothing, of modesty and dress for men and women but it differed according to the era in which the prophets lived. Because as Allah says, each group had a shir'a wa minhaj, and a way of life. So that's what religion is. And again, religion has been coming from Allah. The what to do aspect of life. But then you come to culture. What is, what is culture? Culture is what we can say is the method behind how activities which are required to be performed to maintain the material and spiritual life of the human being, how those are carried out to fulfill the religious and the societal requirements, that is what culture teaches us. That is what culture gives to us. And I'll give you some examples of that as we move on. So in a way, religion and culture are separate from one another but they complement one another. So when Allah said in Surah Al-Ahzab, or Surah Al-Hujurat, my apologies, chapter 49, verse 13, O humanity, indeed we have created you from a male and a female and spread you into different nations and tribes that you may get to know one another, لِتَعَرَفُوا Indeed the most noblest of you in the sight of Allah is the one with the most piety, and that Allah ends it that in Allah indeed God is all knowing, all aware. We see that, that this verse shows us that culture is actually a, uh, a God given blessing, we can say. Just as a few nights ago we talked about the fact that language and our color is God given, culture is also given to us by Allah, by God. How so? Well, this verse tells us that we were created from a male and a female, and then, وَجَعَلْنَاكُمْ شُعُوبًا وَجَعَلْنَاكُمْ Allah says, we have spread you into different nations, different tribes, different communities. 
So in a way, you and I can say, or we can, you know, I can say to you that culture is actually a God-given blessing. Culture is given to us by God, by the sheer fact that He has spread us around the earth. And as we grew in different parts of the earth, in different countries, in different climates, in different uh, you know, temperature zones, different geographic regions, our culture developed basic, based on the needs of what we're, where we lived. And so the goal, as Allah says, is to know one another. And so the goal is not to, sense, to necessarily um, just become uh, one in the melting pot. You know? And that's why you know, we have multiculturalism, that we retain our culture as Muslims. We retain our identity as wherever our parents came from or wherever we came from originally. And we celebrate the diversity of humanity. And especially the diversity that we see here in Canada, which we may not necessarily see in our homeland, wherever that may be, in the Middle East or in, uh, in the Far East or what have you. And so when we look at this religion and cultural aspect, what we understand is that it doesn't matter where you were born, but the culture will be obviously where you are brought up. As long as you have the religion, and as long as the cultural norms of where you were born or brought up or are living are not going against the teachings of the prophets of Allah, are not going against the teachings that you subscribe to in the religion of Islam, then culture is open to be accepted or rejected as long as it again fits within the mandate of what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has revealed for humanity's progress and success in this world and in the world to come. Now, obviously we have to realize that whereas religion is, flex, religion is set by Allah, the rules are determined by Allah and obviously explained by the Prophet of Islam and the Imams of the Ahlul Bayt have further explained and given a greater depth of understanding to the rulings. But much of what Islam expects from the followers is up to us to determine how those actions are carried forth. Now, there are certain things, brothers and sisters, that are written in stone. They will not change whether you are living in Iraq or Calgary, or Toronto, or Italy, or South Africa, or China. The Salat, for example, the five daily prayers, they will always have to be done in a certain way, as the Prophet taught us how to pray. As he says, Sallu usalli, Pray as you see me pray. But, although the Salat will be, will be done how the Prophet prayed, the clothing on what a Muslim wears can vary as long as it fulfills the minimum requirements of Islam. You can pray wearing a pant and a shirt or in whatever your native culture wears as clothing. Allah doesn't say that you have to pray in the clothing that the Prophet prayed in because that's a cultural nuance. The religion teaches the act of worship, how to perform the act, but in what clothing do you pray? As long as it fulfills the requirements, then we're okay. You look at the month of Ramadan and fasting. The length of the fast is dictated by the rules of Islam. And nobody can change those. You can't say, for example, that, you know, it's uh, 
it's too difficult to fast in Alberta, let's say, in, in Edmonton or northern Alberta or northern Canada or in the Scandinavian countries in the summer because the fast is 18, 19, 20, 21 hours in some parts. And so I will alter the fasting time. No, you can't do that. But you can say, I'm going to break my fast with pizza and hamburgers rather than jello kebab or other than biryani or whatever food my culture is accustomed to eating. So again, the rules of the religion won't change. Those are set by Allah. But the cultural aspects of those acts of worship, they can change based on where you're from, based on where you immigrate to, based on what you personally desire, what you enjoy. So did Islam come to do away with culture? Question number three. I would say no. And if you look in the, in the Qur'an, we can never find examples of where Islam came to do away with culture. If anything, Islam came to do away with the erroneous beliefs of our predecessors. You know, when you look in the Qur'an, you see many times ayat where Allah says, where people will say rather, and Allah quotes them as saying, you know, Allah, they will say, well, why are you doing X, Y, and Z? And they would say, نَحْنُ وَجَدْنَا abaana." That we found our forefathers doing so and so. You know, uh, and, and Allah responds to them that what if your father, your forefathers, la ya'akiluna shay'an, wahum la yahtadun? What if your forefathers were foolish and they were not guided, you'll still follow them? So, in matters of religion, of, of, of knowledge of God, of knowledge of Allah, we don't follow. Right? We realize that Islam came to do away with that aspect, that don't follow your forefathers blindly in terms of ideology, that because they did something, especially if it was wrong, like in the Quran when Allah talks about those certain Arab tribes in the Hijaz that were burying their daughters alive. Right? That was a cultural expression of what they were doing. It wasn't in their religion, it was in their culture, and that was a negative aspect which had to be done away with. But the food the Arabs ate, if it was halal, no problem. If the clothing they wore was fitting with the norms of religion, okay. But if they had anything that went against the norms of human decency, of the morality that Islam was bringing about, then those had to be eradicated from the society. And so I would say, as we move on, that Islam actually came to complement culture, and where needed, it came to mold and um, mold that culture into something that was more fitting with what the Islamic ethos of life would be. So just to give you two or three examples and we'll move on. I don't want to over-exhaust this topic. Hijab. As you and I know, hijab is an obligation for our Muslim sisters and the men. You know, we know as men that we have a hijab also. We don't obviously cover our hair and our body like women do. But men also have to realize that we have a hijab. We can't go to the beach, for example, if there are women there, even if they're non-Muslims, and be wearing short shorts and take off our shirt. This is haram for a man to do. So men have a level of hijab as well. Women have another level of hijab. And there's a reason and a philosophy behind that, which obviously I don't want to get into tonight, but there's a philosophy behind hijab for women, why it is, why, what it is, and also for the men. 
In Islamic culture, again that term I used began in the beginning that we have Islamic culture, we have cultural Islam. In Islamic culture, the rule is to dress modestly. That's the culture of Islam we can say, is we as Muslims dress modestly. Now, cultural Islam will interpret the ruling in different ways. So if you're Iraqi, for example, a woman will wear the Iraqi abaya and the hijab in a certain fashion. But you travel across the border to Iran, and the Iranian women take the same uh, Islamic culture of hijab and change it to cultural Islam of the Iranian women, which is the chador. You go to, let's say, the, the, the hijaz or the, the Gulf countries, and their form of hijab for the women is a different style that you, will find, that you might not find in Iraq or definitely in Iran. And Pakistan would be the same, and China and Russia, and so on and so forth. Another example, as I said, was food. In Islamic culture, we eat only halal. Islamic culture says we eat halal food. Now what does cultural Islam say? You can have whatever kind of kebab or rice or soups or whatever you want, as long as it meets the criteria of being halal. So again, there's no uh, war between the two. Islamic culture tells us something, and the cultural Islam tells us what to do. And even language, you know, this has been a, a contentious issue in many times that, you know, what is the language of Islam? Is it Arabic? Is Arabic the language of Islam? And no doubt the Arabic language is the Quran, is in Arabic, the ahadith of the Prophet and the Imams are Arabic, the, the adi'iyah, the supplications, the munajat are in Arabic. But we don't say that Arabic is a language is it's the Islamic language. It's a medium by which much of Islam has been carried forth. But that doesn't mean that if you don't speak Arabic, you're not a good Muslim. Right? That's the cultural aspect of it. And so you can speak English and be a good Muslim, or French, or Spanish, or uh, Russian, or Mandarin, or whatever language, because that is the cultural aspect of the religion. Salu ala Muhammadin wa ali Muhammad. So, in these last few moments, let me conclude with this, that, as I said at the beginning, that Islam is, a, the beauty of Islam lies in the fact that we have unity, but yet at the same time we have diversity. We have unity in the sense that we pray in the same direction, we pray to the same God, we pray in the same Arabic language. All of the actions in terms of the Hajj are done in a form of unity, even ziyara. Although people may add and, and do certain things, but the general universality of ziyara of Abu Abdullah or any of the Imams of Ahlul Bayt is universal across the board. And when you go for ziyara, you'll meet people of the followers of Ahlul Bayt from all over, from all walks of life, from all cultures. And you'll see that the ziyara is a universal phenomenon. They'll all do ziyara in the same way. But there's diversity. Again, when you go for ziyara, you, you see the zawar from all around the world. You go for hajj, you see hujaj from all over the world. So the diversity of Islam is there. And as I said also in the second point, when I began, that you have what is um, the culture of Islam, and you also have you know, uh, Islamic culture. 
So there are certain things which are based in what I call the Islamic culture. So like hijab is part of Islamic culture. But how the Muslims uh, manifest the hijab is based upon their own country of origin or where they now live. Many actions that Allah and the Prophet taught us are within that framework of Islamic culture. But how they are done, how they are, 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 are put out by the believers is based on their own culture. And as long, as we said, as long as those cultural norms do not violate the rules of Islam, we're okay. So we know the rules of hijab as an example for women or for men are certain parts of the body have to be covered. Does it matter if you wear black or yellow or white or gray? Not really. Doesn't matter whether you cover your, you know, you wear, a man wears a pant and a shirt or a dish dasha. No, as long as they're following the rules of the religion and the covering is adequate, Islam has no problems with that being adhered to. And so when we come to the last question, that how do we as Muslims living in Canada, again, whether we are born or we came from another country as immigrants, how do we balance this culture versus religion, this fight that always seems to happen? You know, and especially in Muharram, unfortunately, many times this discussion comes about when we look at the forms of Aza, the forms of grief, the forms of lamentation, the forms of commemoration of the tragedy of Karbala. Because certain times, certain people want to adhere to a particular culture of uh, grieving the tragedy of Karbala, and other people say, no, that you can't do that. So we have to realize, brothers and sisters, that our guiding force needs to be Islam. Not only the Qur'an, not only the hadith of the Ahlul Bayt, they're obviously the foundation, but we have to go back to the ulama, the scholars, the mujtahideen, the maraja taqlid, and ensure that whatever we do, that it falls in line with what they have understood to be the norms of Islam. Because again, we don't want to do anything which would upset the balance of religion and culture. Culture has its room, but Islam also has its say. And if a time comes where culture is beginning to supersede, culture is beginning to take over, culture is beginning to impose its own norms or its own self-perceived values on religion, then we have to come to an understanding that there has to be a red line. That we cannot let culture overrule the religion. We cannot say that, well, just because I did things back in Afghanistan, or Pakistan, or Iraq, or Iran, because we did them there, then it's okay to do them. No, we need to ensure that they fall in line with the teachings of Islam. And if we're not mujtahideen ourselves, then we need to go to the experts and confirm with them. And so, let me end with these last three points before we go into the remembrance of the tragedy of Karbala for tonight. Three things for me to leave with you on this challenge of balancing religion and culture. One is that I would say we as Muslims, Shias, the followers of Ahlul Bayt or Muslims in general, I don't want to you know, um, just put it into one category, but Muslims in general, we need to do our best to retain our cultural identity. That means our language that our, our mother tongue is, what our parents spoke back home, to an extent our customs from back home, 
the traditions that we followed back home. I don't want the youth to say, well, now I'm in Canada, and so I should be Canadian fully. No, I agree. I myself was born in Canada, and I have much of Canadian culture within me. But at the same time, we have to realize that we need to know where we come from. If you don't know where you've come from, you don't know where you're going to be able to go. Right? Those who shut their, the doors to the past and don't want to acknowledge that they're from another country in the Middle East or the Far East or in Africa or wherever they're from, they're losing out on a lot. And we have to, at a level, because we live in this country where we are allowed to maintain our identity, this multiculturalism, we have to ensure that we maintain our identity. If that means we're somehow hyphenated Muslims, we're Iraqi Canadians or Pakistani Canadians or Afghani Canadians or Jamaican Canadians or whatever we are, we have to maintain our identity. Number two is we need to know where the rules of culture end and where Islam is. Because we can't, again as I said, let culture supersede Islam. There has to be uh, a limit to where culture is. And if it ever goes that culture is uh, encroaching on the rights of religion, then culture has to come to an end. And Islam has to then take over from that point forward. And third, and let me end with this, is that we have to recognize the fact that Canadian culture, and I don't mean Judeo-Christian Canadian culture, because although maybe Christian culture built this country, um, and that can be debated and argued, but not today, um, but I would say the collective experience of everybody who's come to Canada from all over the world, because we are a multicultural country, and don't let anybody ever tell you, go back to where you came from, because anybody who says that, if they're European, if they were not in the indigenous First Nations, then they also are immigrants to this country. But we have to appreciate and recognize the fact that there is good in, Can in Canada. There is good in our culture. There is good in the way that people treat one another. And you'll find a lot of this wherever you go, and I've seen this across this country from coast to coast to coast. We can embrace the good of this culture, but we, you and I have to, be, we have to remember that we have to be critical. We have to look at everything with a critical eye. And if we find that our country is not doing right or has some blemishes, we can't be afraid to be shy to speak about it. But embrace the goodness if it doesn't go against Islam. If it doesn't go against our culture of Islam, then embrace the good of this society and recognize the fact that Culture is a gift from Allah. Why? He says, That we can know one another. So we can know people from various cultures who live in Canada. So we can know the beauty and the diversity that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has put upon this earth. Tonight on this seventh day of Muharram, going into the eighth night of this night of Muharram, I want to remember a young man who gave his life on the day of Ashura, on the plains of Karbala, unlike many other individuals. And tonight I want to spend these last few moments reflecting on the martyrdom of Qasim, Al-Qasim ibn al-Hassan, 
the young son of the second Imam, Imam Hassan ibn Ali al-Mujtaba alayhi salatu wasalam. You know, brothers and sisters, that although I'm sure every martyr that fell on the plains of Karbala affected the heart of Abu Abdullah, whether it be the 80-year-old Habib ibn Madahir, or whether it be you know, Abu al-Fadl Abbas, or whether it be any of the other companions or any other the family members, Abu Abdullah, I'm sure, he wept and he cried. And it hurt him to have to see these people go and lose their lives as they did. But there was one young boy on the day of Ashura, my brothers and sisters, whom I'm sure it was very difficult for Abu Abdullah to allow him to go to the battlefield. And that is his young nephew Qasim. Qasim was only three years old when Imam Hassan, his dear beloved father, died, when he was poisoned and martyred. He didn't die a natural death, he was poisoned by his wife at the orders of none other than Muawiyah ibn Abu Sufyan. May Allah deal with this man, with his justice. May Allah deprive this man of any mercy for all the crimes against humanity that he committed. Qasim was only three years old when he was orphaned, when his father was poisoned. And we've all heard the narrative of, of Imam al-Mujtaba on his deathbed coughing up blood and coughing up his insides into a pot. And we know that on that day when Imam Hassan was about to leave this world and he was dying, and his younger brother Abu Abdullah al-Hussein was sitting at his bedside looking at his brother in this miserable state. And Imam Hussein salam was crying at the tragedy of what was happening to his brother Imam Hassan. Imam Hassan would look at his brother in the eyes and he would say to his brother Abu Abdullah, he would say that don't cry for me. What do you mean don't cry? How can you not cry seeing your own flesh and blood coughing up blood, about to die. And Imam Hassan would tell his brother, he says that there will come a day when 30,000 people will surround you, thirsty for your blood, thirsty to shed your blood. And each of these people will be claiming to be from the ummah of our jad, of our grandfather Rasulullah. And that they will gather to kill you, seeking closeness to Allah. And that's when Imam Hassan would tell his brother Abu Abdullah, he says that, that, you know, whatever happens to me, let it be. But there is no day like your day, Ya Abu Abdullah. And brothers and sisters, that day that Imam Hassan was talking about was this day of Ashura. Let me take you back to the night of Ashura as we remember this young Qasim. It was the night of Ashura. We can imagine the ninth of Muharram. Abu Abdullah knew that this was it, that tomorrow was the day that this was the day of destiny, this was the day that he was going to meet Allah. La ilaha illallah. They were in the tent on the night of Muharram, the companions were there, Abu Abdullah was there, the family were there. They were taking advice, they were talking to one another. Imam Hussein was giving them words of admonition. And after the companions had all pledged their, their allegiance and loyalty to Abu Abdullah, they, they said that we will die tomorrow defending you, Ya Abu Abdullah. After each and every one of these men in their 20s, in their 30s, in their 40s, in their 50s, in their 60s, after they all left, a young boy who's sitting in the corner of the tent, a young child of 13 years old, he comes towards Abu Abdullah. 
he goes towards his dear beloved uncle, the uncle who was not only an uncle, but he was the one who really brought Al-Qasim up because of his father being killed. And Qasim comes to Abu Abdullah, to his uncle, and he asks Imam Hussein, he says, will I too be killed tomorrow? Will I die tomorrow? And he probably had a twinkle in his eye. He probably had some sort of excitement in his voice hearing all of these brave warriors like Abu al-Fadl Abbas, like Ali al-Akbar, all pledging their loyalty. So he comes to his uncle and he says, Uncle, will I also die tomorrow? You know what Abu Abdullah says to his young 13-year-old nephew? He says, Kaifa tara al-maut? How do you see death? How does a 13-year-old see death today? Even our elders, maybe we're afraid of death. But Abu Abdullah says, Kaifa tara al-maut? How do you see death? And young Qasim, subhanAllah, what does he say? He says, Ahla min al-asal. He says, Oh my dear uncle, to me, death is sweeter than honey. To die in your way is sweeter than honey. Subhanallah, what a, what a man, what a young boy with basira, with insight, with, with a deep sense of perception of this dunya and what is contained within the dunya. Imam Hussein turns to his young nephew and he says, Anta min shuhada aidan, that you will definitely then be one of the shuhada if this is your interpretation, if this is your understanding, if this is what you want from life, if you want to give your life then, Inshallah, you will be amongst the martyrs. Brothers and sisters, it was the day of Ashura. The morning had passed, the adhan had been given. Many people had gone to the battlefield, one after the other. They would go to Abu Abdullah as every single man who went to the battlefield. They would not go alone, they would go to Abu Abdullah. And they would say, Ya Sayyidi, O our master, Ya O my master, give me the permission to go to the battlefield. And once they received explicit permission from Abu Abdullah, that person would go to the battlefield. And as we know, and as we will have heard in the years past and on the day of Ashura and the Maktal, that every man who went to the battlefield after getting permission, they never came back. Some of them may have come back temporarily to bid one last farewell, but those who went, they never came back alive. And so on the day of Ashura, Young Qasim, this 13-year-old boy, not even baligh yet, not even at an age of being aware of what's maybe, you know, the full ramifications of what's going on around him. He sees people go to the battlefield. He sees his friends. He sees the family go one after the other after the other. And he, I'm sure he's watching on and seeing them fight bravely. And they eventually fall. And I'm sure he sees Abu Abdullah run into the battlefield to put their head in his lap, to bring the body back to the tent. Eventually, brothers and sisters, a day, a point came on the day of Ashura. A point came when Qasim can no longer bear this. He told his uncle on the night before that death was ahla min al-asal, it was sweeter than honey. And he wanted a taste of this honey. What was this nectar? What was this nectar called shahada? What did it taste like? What did it feel like to drink from the cup of martyrdom? What did it feel like to go through the challenges to see Rasulullah? to see his grandmother Fatima Zahra, to see his grandfather Amir al-Mu'mineen, to see his father Imam Hassan. Brothers and sisters, the young Qasim would come to Imam Hassan time after time, and every time Imam Hassan, 
he, I mean, every time Imam Hussein rather would have Qasim come to him, he would say, no, you're not ready, you're too young, you don't have to go out to the battlefield. Young Qasim became anxious, he became agitated, he wanted to go, he wanted to be that representative of his father, he wanted to show his uncle that he was there to protect and to preserve the integrity of, of Islam and Ali Muhammad. Eventually, brothers and sisters, the writers of Maktal mentioned that the young Qasim, this 13-year-old boy, he goes to his mother Ramla in the tent. He tells his mother what's happening. He tells his mother that he wants to go to the battlefield. He wants to go and sacrifice his life. But he says, my uncle Imam Hussein, my Sayyid, my master will not give me their permission. Oh, my mother, can you intercede for me? Historians say that Ramla, she comes with the young Qasim. She comes and she begins to talk to Aba Abdullah. She tells Aba Abdullah that you know your brother Hassan, who he was. You know that this child in front of you, Qasim, that this is the son of your brother. I know that it's going to pain you for him to go to the battlefield. But please, she says, that in the name of your brother Hassan, that this was the day that this is the moment that Qasim has been waiting for his entire life. He is here to defend you, Abu Abdullah. That he is here to represent his father on the battlefield. There is no doubt that Imam Hassan salam would have wanted for Qasim to go into the battlefield. And so unfortunately, after this difficult discussion ensues and Ramla goes back, Abu Abdullah has no, no choice but to allow this young boy, this young 13-year-old Qasim, a young child, he allows him to finally go into the battlefield. He bids his last farewell to Qasim. He bids his farewell. He mounts him on top of the horse. A young child, how he gets on top of the horse, we have no idea. How he's able to carry a sword. What kind of armor can a 13-year-old boy carry on his small, tiny body? We have no clue. But he goes into the battlefield. He goes into the battlefield and he begins to proclaim in those words of poetry. He says to the enemy forces, he says, In Tunkiruni, Fa'ana Najlul Hassan. He says, If you do not recognize me, then know that I am the son of Hassan. Sibtin Nabi al Mustafa al Mu'taman. He says, I am the grand I am the son of the grandson of the Prophet Al Mustafa al Mu'taman. He says, Had al Hussein kal Asir al Murtahan. This is Hussein. He is like a tied down prisoner. What are you doing to my uncle? What are you doing to Hussein? Why are you treating my uncle like this? He says, Baina Unas, La Suku Sobal Muzun, that he's among the people who may Allah deprive them of his blessings. Brothers and sisters, as young Qasim, although a young boy, he has sword in hand. He begins to kill many of the enemy forces. He kills few of those who are trying to approach him. Keep in mind that this is the son of Imam Hassan. This is the grandson of Haider al-Karar, the one who never fled the battle. He is the young boy who was brought up in the lap of Aba Abdullah. He had Abu Abdullah as a mentor. He had men like Abu al-Fadl Abbas as a mentor. He had men like Ali al-Akbar as a mentor. And although he fought very bravely for the few moments on the day of Ashura, eventually the enemies began to surround him. They realized that this young boy who hasn't had water for so many days, who hasn't had anything to give him that nourishment, they began to go around him, they began to circle him from all sides, people began to hit him, people began to poke at him, eventually one of the enemy forces, they come and they strike him on the head with a sword, and Qasim falls off of his horse, as he begins to fall off of his horse, he once again, as all of the other people would do, he would let out a scream, he would let out his last salam to his uncle, Abul Ab 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 
Aba Abdullah. And as all of the times Aba Abdullah had done today, he would run towards the battlefield. As the enemies would see Aba Abdullah rushing, they would disperse away. And eventually when Aba Abdullah comes, he sees young Qasim on the floor. He sees young Qasim on the plains of Karbala. He sees young Qasim in the state that he is. And he addresses young Qasim. He addresses his nephew and he says, And how difficult is it for your uncle, O Qasim? How difficult is it for your uncle that you call upon him and he can't respond? And then when he does respond, he can't even help you in any way. And in this way, brothers and sisters, on the day of on the day of tenth of Muharram, on the day of Ashura, this young Qasim, the one who was the left the remains of his father, Imam Hassan, that he also gives his life on the plains of Karbala, defending his uncle, defending the cause of Islam, defending the religion of Allah defending the religion of Rasulullah, defending the religion of all of the prophets that had come before. وَسَيَعْلَمُ الَّذِينَ ظَلَمُوا أَيَّمٌ قَلِبٍ يَنْقَلِبُونَ إِنَّا لِلَّهِ وَإِنَّا